I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. Minority and community banks are critical to the success of America's diverse communities. These keystone institutions, often classified as MDIs or minority depository institutions, provide essential funding for people seeking to purchase, often first homes. They provide startup capital for small businesses where family networks and wealth may be limited. And they offer a source of emergency support for people facing unexpected challenges and personal crises. Yet despite their centrality, the number of MDIs has declined significantly in the last three decades, and they face stark business and operational challenges. MDIs are far smaller than your average commercial bank, and the pandemic exacerbated long-standing historic challenges as the fortunes of many rural and minority customers tended to fall even more than elsewhere, creating both greater shocks to MDI balance sheets, just as demand for their assistance soared. Now, in response, Congress passed significant measures to recapitalize MDIs, but significant drivers impairing growth substantially remain. Perhaps the most significant challenge is digital transformation and technology adoption. You see, for all their success and overperformance, paper-based systems are common, and loan management, accounting, and other customer relationship tools utilize software systems that don't always accommodate their customers' needs nor consider their unique circumstances or identities. It was for this reason that I was delighted during DC Fintech Week to ask some of the foremost technology companies in the country to pitch solutions of sorts for minority and community banks, which we've published in a report entitled Future Proofing Inclusion, which can be found on the dcfintechweek.org website. Now, we have been delighted by all the feedback from this project, and it's kicked off a conversation that we are looking forward to continuing today with two of the country's foremost experts here to talk a bit more about MDIs and inclusion. Nicole Elam, the CEO of the National Bankers Association, a leading trade group representing minority-owned financial institutions and women-owned institutions, and Larry Parks, a co-founder of Forethought Advisors an advocacy, lobbying, and strategic solutions firm. Nicole and Larry are two of the best, with their fingerprints on conversations taking place all throughout the city. So sit back and listen close to another unique conversation you'll hear only on The Beat. Larry, thanks so much for joining the show. Hi there, Chris. Thanks for having me. Nicole, such an honor to have you. It's so great to be with you, Chris. Nicole, maybe we should start from a 10,000-foot perspective. You know, when you think about the pandemic, um, most commentators from a commercial or economic perspective think about digital transformation. When you look out at the landscape and you look at what digital transformation has meant for mainstream institutions, how does this compare to what we see with uh, MDIs? Yeah, Chris, that is a great question. Um, The pandemic in and of itself really 
reshaped the banking landscape in a number of different ways. It accelerated digital transformation, like no longer was it something that we should do. It really accelerated, it's now a must do. Um, It made us rethink the role of a branch, right? Our branch is really necessary. This hybrid of, you know, part digital, part branch was really rethought. You're now starting to see these things called express ATMs where it's a smaller footprint branch and you go in it and it's a teller that's some, you know, someplace else that you're seeing virtually. So it really made us rethink the role of a branch and it ushered in a new competitive landscape. We're seeing fintechs pop up, um, payment companies that are now getting into the banking landscape. So it really reshaped the banking landscape. And so what the pandemic did for mainstream institutions, it exasperated what we already knew about MDIs, right? The fact that they are behind digitally. And you really saw this when it came time to PPP. Those who had technology were better able to weather COVID and they were better able to process and participate in PPP for the service of their communities. And so MDS are drastically behind. And so it it really put this issue uh, on front street. Um, MDIs are really at the center of serving communities that have been impacted the most by the pandemic. And so it shows that technology is not just necessary for the future of banking, but it's necessary for the now of banking because COVID drastically reshape the banking landscape. Everything from customer acquisitions to making loans to data analytics to the way that we think about the future payment structure and digital assets and and, and cryptocurrency impact measurements. All of these things have been impacted by the pandemic and and it highlighted that technology is a must. You know, that is such, you know, there was a lot to that answer. And 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 what I found really interesting is, you know, thinking about that question of digital transformation, thinking obviously about how the operational changes to banking, yeah. uh, you know, are, are are happening everywhere, you know, from like yeah. do you need a do you need a branch? Do you need a bank? You know, yeah. uh, and, yeah. and and then and then sort of thinking through the critical issue of the mission of many, uh, you know, MDIs, you know, that they are there to serve certain kinds of, of communities. And then obviously, you know, if they don't have the proper technology stack to do that in a, in a, in a digital mm-hmm. world, that, 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 that's really going to, you know, that's a big question mark, at least for, yeah. for, for, for the mission, you know, you know, Larry, I, I guess, you know, maybe you can sort of just hop in here for it for a moment and, and, and sort of, um, take then the conversation a step further. Right. Um, Technology is a is a big term. It, it, it can impact everything from customer acquisition, as as Nicole had had mentioned. It can mean accounting, right? It, and, and and obviously, it can mean the front end or the back end of different kinds of MDIs. What do you see as perhaps some of the most pressing technology needs of MDIs? You know, Chris, this is an interesting question. I think you know we have a tendency to overuse technology as a term. I think. And also see it as a substitute for either human capital or technological capital. I think the back office functions uh, that are so much important in banking uh, is where technology is the most useful. I think because that's where it adds the most efficiencies. I think one of the strengths of MDIs and and CDFIs and small banks is really the interpersonal relationship they have with customers. It can be part of the customer experience, but it's no substitute for the ability to talk to a human being. And I think that's what MDIs bring to the equation more than anything else. And character lending. Which oftentimes is not as, does not fit as much into the algorithmic framework, but I think when it comes to the back office components, making sure that there's a transfer of, of from you know when you look at how you make a mortgage, 
how you make a mortgage and sell it to the secondary market. When you look at it, if you're going to create a loan and you're going to sell it into a collateralized loan obligation, you're going to create a, you know, what are you doing in that component part and your ability to efficiently be able to be part of a pool? Absolutely. Accounting side, absolutely. Basic mechanics, absolutely. Customer interface, question mark. That's just a really important observation and kind of gets to the roots of the policy challenge. Um, MDIs, on the one hand, uh, at the end of the day, are banks, and they face the same challenges of banks. They, they have to navigate asset liability mismatches, have sufficient capital, and make sure they extend good loans. But they have customers with, at times, very unique circumstances, and they have to be able to engage them and have their trust, which I think raises really interesting questions um, about front-end operations and what they should look like as compared to larger mainstream banking institutions and whether and how, you know, this is one of the distinguishing features of the MDI technology conversation. Uh, Nicole, uh, taking this conversation a step further, what are you seeing as the major pressure points uh, of the moment and, and how have the technology needs of minority and rural banks usually been met? Great question. I think to answer this, uh, this question around the technology needs of MDIs, in a number of ways, you just kind of have to step back and go back to the basics, because this is the technology that folks are dealing with. They have outdated IT infrastructure. So all of these great fintech solutions are being offered up, but they have outdated technology infrastructure to begin with. Um, and so you really have to solve for getting their current IT infrastructure up to date. They don't have IT people, right? I remember when I was at my former big bank, in my building alone, we had 1,600 technologists, right? They don't have a single one chief technology officer, most of them, the vast majority of them. And so when it comes time to vetting all of these technology solutions that are coming their way, they struggle with that. Many of them don't have mobile banking in a real way. Their apps are very surface and, and, and just do basic things. And so when you talk about their pressing technology needs, they one, they need updated infrastructure, and two, they just need a technology person. So once you get over that hurdle, when you talk about what the solutions are that they're needing, we did a survey of our members earlier this year, and they need online lending platforms, they need onboarding platforms, and P2P. Those are the big three things that they're thinking about. Well, guess what? Other folks are past that. P2P folks are on Zelle. You know, like there are so many solutions out there, but that's where our banks are. And so the, the way that they've traditionally met their technology needs in the past are through the core providers. In the banking industry, there are three big technology vendors that provide the core banking system uh, the, for, for financial services. And unfortunately, those core providers are outdated legacy systems themselves. And our banks are beholden to those core providers. And so that's how they've historically and even now are getting their technology needs met is through these core providers, which unfortunately have outdated um, uh, systems themselves. The great thing is with all these new entrants into the market, that might push the core providers to, to do more and to update them, their systems. That answer, I think, is so important because it highlights the fact that in order to onboard new technology solutions, you first have to have digitally transformed. And for many minority and rural banks, that transformation is either underway or hasn't yet really happened. And so the conversation is just different because you have to really go to where these institutions are and understand um, where they are before hopping headfirst into the policy conversation. 
one, one of the things, Chris, I would always say is that you can't underestimate systemic and legacy discrimination. Part of the dynamic as to why they're in the situation they are in mm-hmm. is like they've not been able to make the kind of loan income that mm-hmm. other banks have been able to make. And why can't they do that? Because examiners treat them differently. Mm-hmm. They discourage them from taking risk. They discourage them from lending to this population. They discourage, they have to spend a lot more time proving that what they've done is legitimate. They've got to avoid being put into almost a receivership capacity by the discretion of the examiners not understanding their communities, their borrowers, or if their borrowers, God forbid, miss a payment and that there's ways in which they catch up. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, our technological systems are only going to exacerbate the same problem. So we've got to we've got to put that that human component of racial discrimination in a current form into the equation. You know, j- just to add there, because it was really an interesting conversation that we did have over for for for, for DC FinTech Week. Um, it, you know, and one uh, uh, participant really did note the compliance issue, with maybe not sort of quite as explicitly as as you did, but this sort of issue that hey, you know, um, you know, we, we have we have examiners, <laughs> they're going to look at what we do, and you know, implicitly we may not be as capitalized or well capitalized as everyone else, and so you know, first that technology decision is more important because we don't have the resources to get it wrong. And then B, if we do get it wrong, you know, it, it doesn't, you know, the, the consequences can, can, can be You're even, penalized. yeah, you get penalized and the consequences are even bigger. So, so, so literally there's something about that risk, the, the compliance risk that itself has a kind of a knock on impact as to the enthusiasm or the readiness or the willingness of the MDI itself to sort of engage in that digital transformation, even if it may be critical to its ultimate um, survival. Uh, right. so, so, I mean, well, well, when you think then about you know compliance, you, you can't help but think about the government and and and, and the kinds of uh, sort of support that 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 could be available. Um, for the conference, we had uh, Yelena McWilliams from the FDIC. Uh, we had Michael Sue from the OCC. Uh, we had conversations about both the new sort of FDIC rollout and 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 uh, uh, sort of assistance program and, and the OCC's project reach, but but maybe Larry, you know, you're you're you are the consummate insider. You know, maybe you can. <laughs> do you have any any perspective about you know whether or not there's federal support or federal programming, you know, uh, tailored you know to this very specific issue and this question of of digital transformation. We need to start with Congresswoman Waters, as chair of the committee, was brilliantly able to put in a huge amount of money to capitalize, provide capital for minority banks, CDFIs, and small banks. And one of the things I know, Chris, you are a brilliant lawyer on top of all that you do in FinTech. And what she did so brilliantly, the safeguard against Adirond, was pretty amazing because the set-aside went to small banks, which are minority white, as well as a separate set-aside for minority banks. If you challenge one, you got to challenge the other. The second piece, that deals with a huge question that had been on the table forever, which is about undercapitalization, right? Then the second piece then becomes, lo and behold, when I'm talking to minority banks, their big issue now, and a lot of them, is that they don't have the loan value. So now they're almost overcapitalized, they have more deposits, <coughs> and at the same time, they don't have the lending ability. So one of the things the federal government can do is actually use them as a source of loan, right? Um, the second thing the federal government can do, and I think this is another one of these brilliant moments that we're in, because I'm really excited about the Biden administration because we, we got somebody who's doing some stuff we haven't seen done since LBJ, right? So it's just unbelievable. 
So you've got all this money going into CDBG, Community Development Block Grant, which has a tremendous amount of flexibility. Why not use that as a loan loss reserve? Why not use that to take a tranche of risk? Why not use that? You know, there are ways in which cities can be creative in what they're doing. Why not use it for bonding authority? That they can use minority banks and provide opportunity for the churn of business and lending that so many of these banks need so that they're showcased as being part of the 21st century. Part of that may be, and then we got capacity building that goes with that with CDBG. So we want to see you grow your capacity on the tech side so that you can take on these kind of guaranteed loans that will come down the pike. So the examiners can't complain when you're spending all this money on technological upgrades because we're going to come in with a lending source or we're going to come in and say you're the lender of choice and we're going to build out your capacity. CDBG does that with a lot of things in a lot of areas. Why not banks? Nicole, you two know how Washington works. You have you have any ideas on, on your end about, about how or, or what kinds of, of support there either may be or, or should be or tools that could be available? Yeah, I think Larry hit the, the nail on the head when he was talking about utilizing MDIs in the way that the government does business and creating loan loss reserve funds through CD, CDBG. Um, another thing that I would say is Waters was phenomenal with ESIP and CD, CDFI fund, right? The $12 billion that is now going into MDIs and CDFI banks and credit unions. The challenge is both, uh, both the private dollars that are going into the sector, as well as the private dollar, public and private dollars that are going into the sector are really focused on lending, right? Those are dollars that are focused on lending. We need dollars that are flexible enough to be used for digital transformation that are flexible enough to be used for TA. And that's what we're not seeing a lot of. And so when FDIC Mission Driven Fund came out and it was very much focused on capital, we were quick to say, how flexible is this? Because we need money to get our technology systems together. We need to back up a little bit so that we've got all this capital. We now to be able to, to deploy it and we need technology to deploy it quickly. And so we just need more flexibility because while people are talking about, you've got so much capital, you've got so much capital. Yeah, we need money for TA. We need money for digital modernization. And then another point, you know, just circling back to a great point that Larry made is we can't underestimate historical undercapitalization. I get so tired of pushing back on this narrative of don't you have enough capital? 12 to 18 months of capital in no way levels the playing field of 160 years of undercapitalization. So no, we don't have enough capital and we need more flexible capital to allow us to do some digital modernization. Yeah, I I, I, I really do love th- that idea of, of flexibility, you know, with the CDFI fund. I mean, there's been more money that's been allocated to the CDFI fund. Maybe, you know, making those dollars more more flexible for digital f- uh, transformation is, is interesting. And, I, and, and, and Larry, going back to your ideas, you know, thinking about how government works, you know, like, are there things that the government does where, you know, you're not thinking about CDFIs. I mean, maybe if you're, you know, going to engage in, I don't know, uh, bond purchases by the Fed, you know, if you're going to purchase the, the the bonds of, you know, of, of Microsoft, maybe maybe you can think about purchasing the bonds of, of some of these institutions that are critical to, um, you know, very different uh, pockets and, and, and regions of, of the country. But I, I think those are really all, you know, very, very interesting ideas. Um, so, you know, I, I, I began our, 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 our little discussion here, you know, with this uh, future-proofing inclusion report, have to admit, you know, uh, being involved in it was really fun, super interesting. 
thanks to Congressman Meeks for writing an intro and also giving it a, a, a read and to our banking regulators. Um, you know, we, uh, I, I was curious because I know that, that you've both had a chance to sort of peruse these and Nicole, you were very involved. Uh, maybe you can talk about, you know, a couple of the proposals that you found particularly interesting. And again, Nicole, you know, with the NBA involved in this project, maybe you could just sort of provide a, a brief uh, overview of, 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 of your involvement and, and, and one of your ideas. Well, Chris, first, thank you. You know, I, I love this, these flash presentations and then memorializing it in an ebook. That was, that was phenomenal. So thank you for that. Um, so MBA was a part of it because we, we partnered with Upstart. Upstart is a consumer lending platform. And we, we were working with them on this idea of small dollar lending. So the reality of it is, is that many of our communities, uh, households and businesses alike need small dollar loans, right? So think under $1,000. They need these small dollar loans, but that requires a lot of bandwidth from a personnel perspective. Uh, it's, it's a lot of time, money to do those types of loans. And it's oftentimes not, uh, it, it could be riskier. And so it's not as fruitful for our folks to do those types of loans. They don't have, the small scale just doesn't allow for it. And so what Upstart is doing is they're bringing their, their uh, consumer lending platform to the table to utilize AI and machine learning for underwriting so that you can do these things at a larger scale for a lower cost. And so that's been really phenomenal. And, and folks can do it from their phone, right? So that's the accessibility is, is so strong. And so we enjoyed partnering with Upstart to think about a real, a real problem that is, is happening in our communities, small dollar lending. And as a result, they're going to predatory lendings, lenders with these high interest rates, and they can't kind of get stuck in this, uh, this debt trap. And so it was great to work with Upstart on this pilot and really bringing this to, to life. Um, and switching gears and talking about a couple of other proposals that were in the ebook, I want to talk about themes. So a couple of themes that really showed up was the idea of credit invisible. So credit invisible is an untapped market, right? You have 45 million people who are denied credit because they don't have scorable credit scores. Um, and it impacts Black and Hispanic communities the most. Now, as Larry mentioned, there's systemic reasons as to why these folks are credit invisible, but this is a huge issue. And so I liked one of the proposals that was talking about federal, uh, federated learning, right? Aggregating data insights, so that you can, one, address the current biases in the traditional uh, credit scoring models, but also that you can use this aggregated data from other places and use alternative data like utility, rent, cell phone payments, um, looking at cash balance management to underwrite loans in a way that you wouldn't be underwriting loans to those that are credit invisible. And so I like that. Some things, though, that it, it automatically made me think of was privacy. Many of our banks are highly concerned about privacy. In order to work with fintechs, you have to give up um, some, sometimes your consumer privacy data, and that's a huge challenge. Now, this particular proposal directly addressed that, but that is something big that is, that is huge for our members. Cost sharing, right? I think oftentimes for fintech to work, you have to have some cost sharing and collaboration. And also when you're utilizing AI, the very biases that they're trying to address Sometimes they can create new biases. So you need to have some level of human governance. So I love the proposals that were around Credit Invisible. Um, the last kind of uh, batch of proposals that I liked were around financial literacy. But here's what I would say about financial literacy. You can't just have financial literacy without incentivizing changing behavior, giving people information around uh, financial topics is not going to change their behavior. 
So you really need to incentivize them to change their behavior. For example, if they take financial literacy modules, at the end of it, they should be able to get a rate discount uh, for their mortgage or their small business loan. So right now we're working with consumer lending platforms to have a financial literacy component into it so that they can get discounted rates for doing that. As Larry mentioned earlier, what the strength of our institutions are, are their relationships. So another thing that for financial literacy to work is that it has to be integrated into a banking relationship in order to change financial behavior. So you really want to have financial literacy that leverages, one, the establishment of a banking relationship or that leverages the current existence of a banking relationship. You can't completely uh, disconnect that human element. So those are a couple of things that I, I really liked in I appreciated Square just putting out a playbook, if you will. Larry, um, uh, your thoughts. I mean, we've heard about privacy, or I should say, uh, federated learning and, and and data and privacy. Any any proposal that maybe uh, caught your eye? I mean, I like the whole the proposal that dealt with the Zest versus the BSI BISG because I think data is important, right? And I think if the BSIG is not providing the kind of data source currently had to look at other ways in which we can provide that data source, right? I mean, I think because that is so important to basically being able to find what's the level of discrimination that continues. I think we've got a lot of hyperbole in the space. There's not a lot of deliverable, and I'd like to be able to beta test it a little bit. And I thought that was courageous to have something that actually does that. Um, I, I, the, the challenge, Chris, because you took on such a monumental task with these papers, is are we dealing with the unbanked or are we dealing with discrimination amongst the people who are banked? And I think that the papers lend themselves to talking about the unbanked, as Nicole talked about, the 45 million invisible, the large share of people who have to use alternative sources and other ways to sort of mainstream the activity. At the, I'm curious as to how fintech will help or, or exacerbate discrimination amongst those who are banked. I mean, we still have access, we have an access to credit question, and then we have a cost to credit question. And when you look at the people who have access to credit, but pay a higher cost, discrimination is a component part thereof. And I'm, I'm curious as to how, how technology either exacerbates it or, or helps. Yeah, and, and, and you know, one of the critical questions, right, you know, is, is technology exacerbating sort of uh, human bias or, or is it helping to eliminate it? And, and, and obviously that's, that's you know, uh, like a lawyer, you know, it's one of those times where technology starts to become a facts and circumstances kind of test, but it's, it's, it's critical, right? You know, one of the interesting things about MDIs, and I, I always sort of pitch this to People in the know, like like yourselves, is that you know um, MDIs may be small um, and and they may have have uh, you know a, a limited uh, consumer base, but they are sitting on very important data, right? And when you think about the existing data lakes that are out there, right, and and you know always this problem of like how discriminatory are you know you know when you take data and you create an algorithm, how discriminatory you know is that? Um, algorithm. How fair is that algorithm? Um, you know, it, it just seems to me that part of the value of the data that MDIs do have is that that kind of data may actually help to debias existing data lakes because they, they you know, there's got to be some kind of insight, some kind of transactions that are probably not happening anywhere else. And I think one of the things that you're sort of um, poking at is this larger question of, of, of sort of the credibility of the data. Where do people get data? And how inclusive are those data? And, and I think it'll be really interesting to see, and this kind of gets to the federated learning uh, question that, 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 that Nicole had pointed to, you know, like, are there, is there going to be innovation in the sourcing of data 
even as there's innovation in in technology and, and how you um, ultimately apply it. But I in at, in, in any in any event, I, I did want to thank you both. You know, this has been very eye opening and 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 so very helpful uh, to, to to me personally and 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 I think to many of our listeners. Uh, Nicole, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Chris. And Larry, just invaluable insight. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks so much for all you do. Regardless of who and where you may be, scale matters in a digital economy, even for mission-driven organizations. Now, one of the key questions going forward will be how to support scale for institutions that have long served as linchpins to local economies and communities. And here, financial technology will surely have some interesting answers. The question, of course, will be how to adapt those solutions, themselves at times devised in Silicon Valley or New York, into tools for small banks operating in Atlanta, El Paso, and Detroit. And though the path remains uncharted, it is already clear that it will require open-mindedness among everybody involved. And open-mindedness nowadays can be, at times, in short supply. But I've got to admit here, I'm optimistic that we'll get just that, and that the collaboration to come will transform not only financial services, but our very understanding of inclusion. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer, DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you.